This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. This is Design School. On this episode, we talk to Timothy Bardlavens, a product design leader, cultural strategist, co-founder of the Design and Diversity Fellowship Program, and DEI Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Consultant. Timothy talks to us about his experiences in design and tech as a black gay man from the South, the importance of owning and bringing your full self to your work, and the difference and importance between surviving and thriving in the workplace and the world. Timothy Bard-Lovins, thank you for joining us on This Is Design School today. Cool. Absolutely. So one thing we wanted to get started with was kind of uh, understanding, A, where you are now, and then kind of hearing your story of how you got there. Yeah. Um, I am a gay black man from the South. I am from Columbia, South Carolina. Well, born in Greensboro, North Carolina, raised in Columbia, and I am the normal kind of story of a black man from the south single mother for a bit but got then stepfather came in but you know modestly lower to higher lower income Mm -hmm. if that's a thing went to school at coastal carolina university which is a state school that most people have never heard of the design program was only a few years old if that but i had great professors yeah i actually uh, actually i first started out in um english so I wanted to, I, my major was in English because I wanted to be a writer. Creative writing was my thing. I probably, I used to write poetry most of my childhood. Yeah, I was in English for a while, you know, listening uh, about all these different uh, authors from around the world. And um, my goal was to be the editor-in-chief of Jet Magazine. It was the blackest magazine I could ever think of. And I was like, that's that's my goal. And so at one point I had an epiphany. I was like, ah, if I want to be, you know, an editor of a magazine, I should know how to lay out these these articles and things. Like, I should know this stuff. And so... I changed my minor from philosophy, of all things, to design. And during that time, I also was working in the Office of Student Activities and Leadership. Uh, The two women who were my supervisors, uh, Ms. D and Ms. Diane, you know, they kind of pushed me to say, hey, like, there's more to you than this. You should do more. Like, you should let people see who you are. And so... I think it really just boiled down to at one point they gave me like I was supposed to just create a poster for some events that were going on on campus and then that small little role turned into me working um, just doing design work doing posters for the the whole university so I ended up changing my minor to my major um, I want to say it was my first semester of my junior year first or second semester of my junior year so I ended up adding on a, another semester, I think. And yeah, I cranked through all of my art history courses. I cranked through like a bunch of stuff. And I really felt super behind the whole time because all these people had been in design and been in art classes for their whole college, you know, career where it's I'm just coming in and we're ready to graduate. And I really felt behind, but something that I found really quickly helped me stand out was um, during critiques. I could give probably the best critique of the class. (laughs) 
I was like, I noticed that a lot of my peers started coming to me asking me questions about things. And so that's where I felt like I kind of moved up to be on the same level in a sense. Um, yeah, so that was that. Graduated with my bachelor's in design, minor in English. And I went to work, you know. I, my first job was at a trophy manufacturer called Jones School Supplies. So you think of like the participation trophies you get during field day or the perfect attendance certificates. I was the dude who sat at a computer and created, cranked those things out for schools and then sent them to a printer. And so I was a graphics administrator. I got fired from that and I went into retail for a couple of years, but in doing so, I also did some freelance work and I met now one of my best friends. He gave me the opportunity to rebrand his company, redesign his entire website. Redesign some of the property. Um, uh, environmental signage that he had, like all kinds of stuff. And I kind of used, leveraged that work that I did with him to get my second design job in a, a company called Serona Dental. Yeah, so I did that for a year and a half. I absolutely hated my life. I was the only designer. Um, I wasn't growing and it was a very passive aggressive environment that I'd never lived in before because I'm a very direct person hmm. and so I learned how what it meant to be a black man in corporate America in that job because I learned that as a black guy I should not go to work and be mad angry means aggressive and that's dangerous and so you can't do that at work because people will get scared from that you have to always smile you have to always tell people things are great for example when you have a problem with your manager it's not them who's doing the thing wrong even though it's them it's how can you do better to help improve your relationship with them and so it was like having to navigate through these spaces in a way that I'd never had to in my life. I was always just genuinely Timothy. And so I left that role. It was interesting because at that point I was like, I will never have a real design job in the South. And I had the realization really early that I had to get out of my comfort zone. And so I decided to cast a wide net. I actually ended up getting um, interviewing, getting a job at Ernst & Young in DC. A week before I was going, um, I had a real, another realization. It was something I thought of before, which was this thing of, because I knew what it meant to not have anything, it was, I never wanted to just survive. I wanted to thrive. And that difference was meant a lot to me. And so I made the decision a week before I was supposed to get in the car and drive up to DC to start this new job. I called the, or I, excuse me, I emailed the recruiter because I was a coward. And I said, I'm sorry, but I can't come, I can't come to this. Like, I just can't take the job anymore. Her response back was, good luck on your career. And I thought it was a nail in a coffin. And at that time, I had had only one interview with Capital One for a digital art director role. And it had been about six weeks before since they called me back. So all, for all intents and purposes, it's like, yeah, you didn't get the job, right? <laughs> and But I held out for it. I was like, you know, I'm just going to, like, I just know this is the thing. And it's going to be the thing that's going to be right for me. I slept on my sister's couch. I slept in my grandmother's um, spare room and I just bounced back between the two. I was completely broke. I did that for another, another six weeks almost and like no job and just trying to figure it out. And at the, in, in the meantime, I was applying for hundreds of jobs, like hundreds of them. Every day I would just apply for as many as I possibly could. But all of a sudden I got a call back from Capital One and they were like, hey, we wanna fly you down, talk to you. And when I got down there, they apologized for like having taken so long to get back to me. And a week later after that, they gave me an offer. I was like, great, that's awesome, I'm excited. And then they said, we'll give you your sign-on bonus on your first paycheck. It's like, dang, I don't have any money. And so I had another like moment of, oh, 
am I not going to get this job because I'm going to have to ask them yeah. if I can get it advanced? Right. Like, I got really paranoid. So I talked to the recruiter. I was like, I can't make it down there. And so she was like, okay, let me go and talk to them, come back. She came back, she said, okay, they're going to give you this amount of money, and we're actually going to go ahead and take care of the taxes for you as well, so you can just get it straight out. And I used that money to, I had a Toyota Camry at the time, I loaded that sucker up and put a hitch to U-Haul to the back of that thing, which <laughs> apparently you don't really do. <laughs> <laughs> and I left, it two, left South Carolina at 2 o'clock in the morning with my mother standing on the porch crying, and I hit the road, and I drove 16 hours straight to get to Dallas, and I had, what, four days to find an apartment, and I found a place, and I was there for a couple of years as a digital art director for Capital One. That was fun. But yeah, so I did that, and then at some point, I realized again I wasn't growing, um, and I was like, I want to do more. At the same time, I'd just been introduced to UX, and I was like, ah, oh, you know, because I've been working in marketing and for the most of the time, and so UX is really interesting. It's because it's like, how do why do people do the things that they do? Like, why do, why do they tick? Um, at the same token, I was learning a lot about organizational culture, and it was it was me learning what it meant to have in a homogenous culture, which is basically when to be different is wrong. Everyone is safe, and everyone is okay if you just you don't point out their differences. You say how everyone is the same, and that was really hard for me because. I, I wanted to be myself, but I was told that being yourself makes others uncomfortable, and so you should be like everyone else. Um, and that's the culture that we were developing, and it was really hard. And I fought against that. Uh, at one point, my director, I met her husband during the holiday party, and I walk up to him and say, hey, I'm the black guy. And she turns ruby red. And he and I have the best conversation about Atlanta, where they used to live, and how black it was, and how amazing they loved it, and the food and everything. And I realized at that point that me being unapologetically black and being myself and just calling out the elephant in the room up front, the thing that I've always been chastised of you don't do, it broke down a barrier and allowed me to connect with people in a way that I normally would never have connected with them on. And so that was a really interesting thing for me and really impactful, and it kind of the other part of my career in, in culture. So when I left Capital One, I actually had done a week-long course or intensive with Adaptive Path um, for their UX. And I was like, okay, I'm ready to do it. I'm a professional now, after a week. And I had a recruiter reach out to me about a role. And I was like, okay, yep, I'll, I'll interview for this, sure. And I went in there and I sold it. And when I got the offer, I was scared out of my mind, like imposter syndrome. I was like, wait, I just sold myself way too well. Yeah. And I don't know what to do now. I just hope I don't get fired. Yeah. And I was there for four months. And then I got it reached out to from um, someone from Microsoft, a recruiter. And she um, didn't realize that I had been in my job less than six months. And so I was like, it's fine. You know, just throw a resume out there. If something bites, it will. If they don't, it won't. I wasn't thinking about Microsoft at all. Wasn't on my radar. And I didn't expect anything to come back. And a couple of days later, there were three teams who wanted me. Um, I went up and interviewed, and I got an offer from one. And on the flight back up here to, um, to officially like move into my corporate housing, I had at 33,000 feet in the air, I had another moment. I was like, what the hell are you doing? You need to get off this plane and go back. You are going to get fired. This is not going to work out for you. And that was almost two years ago. So, yeah, I actually have had a very, I've done a lot in a very short amount of time. My career is yeah. very short. <laughs> 
How many years from graduation to now has that been? I graduated in 2012. 2012. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a couple things. Um, I guess I mixed, I missed in there. I did get my, um, my master's from Texas A&M Commerce. For me, I've always had this, this problem in my entire career of if I'm bored, I'm unhappy. And if I'm bored, then I, I don't feel like I'm growing and I have to get out of there. And that's been my career has been really around. I'm not growing here. Like, I've already learned all this stuff. Give me something new to learn. Oh, you don't have anything else you want to give me? Or you don't feel like I'm good enough to do this thing? Or whatever the case may be. Okay, well, then I'll just go and do it for myself. And so my entire career has been me taking it on my own to say, I'm now done with this. I need something new or I have to go somewhere new. And for the most part, up until I've gotten to Microsoft, it's been, I'll just go to somewhere new. Microsoft was the first time where I said I need something new or I'm going somewhere else. And I was given a lot more, mm-hmm. a whole lot more, yeah. which is great. Like, I feel like I'm still in this place of learning and growing, which is nice um, because, you know, it's, it's tiring moving every year or every couple of years. I think I've, was it, I've lived in three different states, three different time zones in the past three years, three or four years. Mm-hmm. And so you had just uh, mentioned that Microsoft has kind of stepped up to the plate when, when you say, I want to learn more. I want to I want to do more. Mm-hmm. Um, how has that feeling of, of being in a place that is actually wanting you to to be more, to do more? How does that feel in comparison to where you've been the last couple of years? I mean, it's great. Um, to be honest, I so I um, I was considering leaving Microsoft and my skip level manager. So my manager's manager, he says to me point blank, "You can't leave because you're black." Like, which on some level, you're like, seriously, someone said that. But on another level, it's like, well, yeah, because, you know, when there's already not many black people in design, design is very homogenous. And to say that we're building experiences for the world, we can't lose people of color and people with diverse backgrounds. Um, I appreciate that. But I think the them saying it wasn't a thing that really meant anything. It was like, I don't trust what people say. Hashtag father issues. Uh, (laughs) I don't trust what people say, but the follow through is what I cared about. And honestly, the thing that really kept me there was because a lot of it was around culture and organizational culture and things that I that I felt I couldn't connect with 100 percent, especially travel around the country and out of the country speaking on it. But it was my manager's manager's manager. So my double skip who sent me an email. He was like, hey, this is important to me. And I would like for you to be a part of this change that we're trying to make. One of my old peers, uh, she is also close friends with him. Um, and she was like, if he says it, then it's true and you should believe him. And that was the only reason I stuck around. But it was with this, this thing of, I feel as though I'm giving this white man my career to hold on to. Mm-hmm. And there's a fear there that I was like, I've never done this before. I've never let someone have control over my career. Yeah. And then the other thing was, you know, I'll give it six months, see what happens. And I'll give it six months after that and see what happens. And it's this thing of coming from the perspective of having one foot out the door, but uh, like just being completely honest with myself of you need to see how the world really looks and see if it matches up to the things that you find to be morally uh, the right thing. And if it's not, then you have to be practical enough to step away from it. Mm-hmm. And so I have to consistently look at it from that lens. But, you know, it, it did throw me off when it was like, no, what can we do to keep you? I was like, whoa, that's an option? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that was an option. I thought it was just one of those, okay, great. Well, thanks for your service, and we'll see you later. 
And so it threw me for a loop in a way where I'm, I felt obligated to see where it went. Whereas it would have been much easier if we could have just cut ties. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was hard because I like clean breaks. So what has changed since then? They mentioned being a part of this change. Like what, did, I mean, what did that include in, yeah, I mean, well, we're still in the trial period. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> still dating. Right, you know. I think that, if nothing else, there's listening that's happening. You know, one of the things I, I talked to the leadership about was there are some big issues that we need to tackle when it comes to culture. But because the organization in which we're in, they need to see that we're trying then we need to have very quick small wins within the next 30 to 60 days. And the leadership really stepped up and they they hit some of those, those immediate needs that people need to see like, hey, we're listening. Like we know that change takes time, but if you can't prove that you're trying quickly enough, then you're gonna lose the people. Like no one's gonna believe you. And so I think that was the, the most important thing was what can we do in 60 days to prove that we're trying? And then how can we make sure we're consistent and make sure this is consistently a part of our conversation and start to strategize for the future? That's been the biggest thing. And I mean, for me, it's probably the most important because um, I tell anybody that I'm not the best designer, but I'm a really good strategist. And that's what I do well. That's what's helped me succeed in all of my roles is being great at strategy. And so, with culture, it's the same thing of like, it's, it's strategy work, it's, it's user experience work, right? Like as a user experiencer, you understand that an organization is a designed entity and in it being a designed entity, the people that are in it are users and they have a specific experience in which we're trying to, to encourage, to develop, whatever the case may be. And so from that perspective, if you take user UX, apply it to organizational culture, you start to see a lens that you haven't thought of before. You see it in a way of like, what are the user-centric statements? Like, as a user, I want to what? As an employee, I want to what? You know, what are the things that we promise users? Like, you're using a computer, using your phone, there's a certain promise that comes with these devices that we sell. What are the promises that we are selling to people in an organization, in a work environment? And I think the same thing can apply to universities, right? You know, right now, every school is completely different and their curriculums are different and what they, what students leave with are completely different. But the promise for every university is the same. We're preparing you for the world. Are we following through with that? That's a totally different question. Same with business. I, th- I think that's how I've been, like how I've seen it and how um, I've seen the change happen and how I've approached a lot of it um, is through like, as a user experience designer, how are we creating and crafting experiences for our users? That was a really roundabout answer. No, it was a very colorful <laughs> example. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. When it comes down to it, design is everything, and organizational design is no different. You can look everything from that lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually tell people, because um, I've been asked before, um, especially when it comes to UX, what like what type of design is UX? and I tell people like UX is design. There's no graphic design, architecture, industrial design. No, it's all UX. I tell, usually when I give talks, um, I talk about how there's diversity, which is how we hire. Inclusion is how we retain. But the umbrella across all of it is culture. I think in design, UX is the same thing. 
graphic versus digital versus architecture versus industrial versus product, whatever, those are all executions, but they're all under the umbrella of an experience. And so if we see UX as the, as the umbrella for all design, then you start to realize how we should approach things. Um, when you build a building, there's a promise to someone that you're making. You're promising that it will, it has like the right kind of structure. You're promising that it will keep them safe, keep them warm, keep them cool, whatever the case may be. When you're building a city, you're promising to take care of citizens. We fail at that a lot, but it's all designed. And so like that's how I've been seeing both culture and design is these, these are these, um, well, yeah, these umbrella terms um, that we use to define the work that we do. Timothy, can you talk a little bit about uh, your work with the Design Plus Diversity Conference? Yeah, um, so the Design Plus Diversity Conference actually was started from the thesis work from a person, a guy, great guy named um, Timothy Hikes from St. Louis. Um, he partnered with the amazing Antoinette Carroll, um, who also is from St. Louis. She's the CEO of Creative Reaction Lab, which is an amazing nonprofit that does a lot of equity-based community work centered through design. And so they started a few years ago and have, with the, the focus of, there's not many, if not any, design conferences specifically for people of color to talk about, well, excuse me, actually it's beyond people of color um, that would limit it too much. It was really around just this diversity space in general. So this year, for example, uh, there were talks around um, not only equity, but around ageism, around abilityism, um, all these different topics. And it really is just supposed to bring light to the parts of design that we don't hear enough about. God bless Michael Beirut, and I love Paula Cher, but they are not design, you know? They are not the end-all, be-all of design. Exactly, yeah. And so um, it brings these voices that you have never heard from before, likely, to a stage and allows people to see themselves. My work specifically started this year, but it started with a conversation because I quit AIGA. And in quitting AIGA, I highlighted one of the most important things, which was um, they've had the Diversity Inclusion Task Force for years. Honestly, they've, been, they've had this task force for almost 30 years or more. Um, I left the organization partially because of the fact that we've had this for 30 years and yet they've had no impact in it. And that has bothered me um, and it continues to bother me. And so because of that and because of multiple other things, um, I completely pulled myself financially from AIGA. Um, I will still participate in certain events if I'm asked to, mainly because I feel like it's important to have a person of color at those events. And so uh, in doing so, I had a conversation with Antoinette, who's actually on the National Board for IGA. Um, and we talked about just our backgrounds and how much we we're alike and how we didn't have a lot of mentors and we didn't have a lot of people who told us, like, what does it mean to be a designer and what is that path and like to give us access to things we've never had before. So from that came the um, Design Plus Diversity Fellowship. We had over a thousand impressions on the website of those over, I want to say over 300 people applied, uh, which was oh, so many applications to go through. And then from there, we, we narrowed down and picked 10 uh, individuals. From the sponsorship side, we got a lot of great uh, sponsorship from Google, uh, from Adobe, and from Microsoft. And man it was just great people um and like they're awesome there's if i can in fact let me see if i can challenge myself to remember everybody's name <laughs> there's shelby zink 
Angel Lopez, there's Maya Bird Murphy, there's Adam Chigani, Dana Chan, there is Akil Allen, there's uh, Antonio Wooten, Andre Reed, there's um, Alina Ansari, who's actually from Seattle, and Quentin Ward. And so those are our 10 fellows. Uh, they're amazing. Um, and the goal of the fellowship is to, one, bring design to these underrepresented communities in a way that they haven't seen it before, but also to provide access and to amplify voices. Uh, yeah, so it's just like these great personalities. And so every month we're providing um, different mentoring calls for them. Um, and then, yeah, we'll work through them creating their own design plus diversity mini conferences. So That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things I was thinking about was you've talked a little bit about uh, some of the struggles of being perceived by others when you're going through school and coming out of school. And then at a certain point, you were just like, no, nah, I'm going to be Timothy and this is me. And you kind of forced through some things to like put yourselves in positions and kind of put yourself out of your comfort zone while being unapologetically Timothy and that you are finding success in that and you've been finding success in that. And it's interesting that like talking about the difference between having fear while doing that, but exuding confidence, mm -hmm. finding success in that, like, you know, pushing through fears of being yourself and doing that, but yet being confident in it. And if that feels like a difference, but then also transitioning to that of, looking for your own role models to help you be like, what should I do? And then turning around and realizing that you might be a role model for others. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm curious if you still feel the imposter syndrome that you talked about earlier. Yeah. This is, so confidence is such an interesting word and it's, I think it's interesting to me because yeah, with the imposter syndrome, I always feel like I'm faking it until I make it end even when I know the right thing to do or the know, know the right answer. And so like, is this weird dichotomy with me of I'm actually extremely introverted. I don't like to speak out. I don't like to be around people a lot. I, I'm in my own little shell most of the time. And people are like, no, Tim, that's not possible. But yeah, and it's, it's even more interesting because when I, when I talk to emerging designers who have, or especially people who I, I work with um, at work, they're like, you know, Tim, you just, you, you have this confidence about you and you do these things. You just seem to be unapologetic, unapologetically yourself. And I tell them like the whole time I'm scared, like heck, like I am, I am terrified when I'm in a meeting and there is someone who is three levels higher than me. And I know I have the right thing. I know I should say this thing. And like, I can listen in a meeting and get to the core of what's being said and help summarize and kind of redirect the conversation. I know I have this ability, but I am scared like heck to do it. But then I do it anyway. Um, and it's, and I have to, I force myself to do it because I feel as though I can either let fear stop me from growing completely, or I can say, okay, yeah, I'm scared. I identify it. And I am probably gonna sweat through this shirt that I have on but I'm going to speak up and I'm going to talk through this thing until, um, until I've had, I've said my piece. And I found that that's the thing that's, been, that's helped me is even when I'm really scared, when I, I know it's the right thing to say, or this is the right thing to do, or I know I should like, I, there's something important that I want to say that I feel like would contribute to the conversation. Me just saying that thing has 
Like I've, it's been more than that. I've had leadership look at me and nod and say, yeah, exactly. And that has helped me. It's given me, like one of the biggest things about growth, especially in a large company, is partnerships and visibility, right? Like it's do the, the people you work around, not just the people you work around identify with you, identify you and know you, know your work and want to work with you, but the partners, people from other teams. Um, how do you impact them positively? How do, how do you show up with them? How do you create those partnerships? And from there is how you actually grow in an organization. But what I can do is create these new strategies and partnerships and then develop an awesome team in which they do all this crazy stuff that I could never imagine and I can help bring their vision to life and they can help me bring my vision to life. And so that's kind of what I've seen has been super helpful and it stemmed from the thought of not just being heads down doing my own thing scared but really standing out and saying that okay this is who I am, this is what I know I can do, like I know these are my superpowers. And so like for me, especially starting out is a writer who wanted to go into journalism, I'm a storyteller. That's the thing that got me my job at Microsoft was I can tell the story. And so I leveraged that. Before that, most of my design jobs I got because I was a designer who could write. And now it's the person who can sit in a meeting and listen and then summarize everything that's been said in a way that we know the actionable next steps and that we can come back and take, I can go in and take something that's super nebulous and say, okay, this is an area that we need to define. And I can say, okay, I'll work with you to define it. And we'll work through, we'll create principles, we'll talk through things, we'll create a vision for this stuff. And that's what I do really well. And those have been my superpowers. And so I think that's what has helped me in a sense battle some of my imposter syndrome. It's when I know I'm doing something that aligns with my superpower. And if it's something that I'm weak at, then I, um, I'll do one of two things. One, I'll try to figure it out. Or two, I'll delegate. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that also, you know, kind of goes back to this idea of you're wanting to have more people either at the table or on the field to show the next generation that mm -hmm. here are others that are doing unique things that are either people of color or that come from a diverse background or that have access to all of these other opportunities that there are out there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, we... You fight so hard to find the role model you need, then you become the role model for other people in a way you didn't expect. And then take that a step further and say that, okay, well, what was the thing that was limiting me? Like, what is the whole purpose of a role model? And it's this thing of, especially in the corporate environment, what's the difference between mentorship and sponsorship? A mentor is someone who just kind of helps you work through a few things, gives you some good advice, um, but a sponsor, is a mentor plus someone who's willing to put their neck out of the line to say, I'm vouching for you and I'm fighting for you and I'm gonna help provide access to things that you didn't have before. And that's really been the thing that I've been trying to do the most. And sometimes I fail at it. Sometimes I speak to people who have really interesting perspectives and I'm like, man, I really want to like work with you on something, but I just have no connections or no way to do that for you. And so it's like, I'll keep you in my Rolodex and see if I can come back to you later. But yeah, it's, my, my mission is access. How can I provide access to, to peers, to direct reports, to the fellows, to get into a place that I, didn't, I wasn't able to or that maybe was a little harder for me to do? I've had a really 
quick trajectory, but God help me if I didn't have to hustle every time. You don't have no have no idea how many times I may have tweaked some wording or over embellished on my resume or did whatever I had to do just to like get in the door. Because once I'm in the door, I'll prove that everything I put on my resume is true in some way. Even if I'm learning while I'm going, you won't know I'm learning. You're just going to think I'm executing. But it's a hustle that I've constantly had to do. And I think it's a hustle that's almost, um, it's almost unfair in some way because I've seen others who have such strong access into avenues that I could never get, who had, like, maybe they have to work hard once they're in, but that door was open for them. Mm-hmm. Where I've had to, you know, damn near take a sledgehammer to a door just to, like, open it up. And, and this, honestly, it's really just been, like, uh, half the time for me, it's, it's just been saying I can do this and I'm just going to keep going for it until I get it. Like some, somebody somewhere is going to give me a chance. I'm going to tell someone a story that they will think they cannot live without. And so they're going to want to bring me on. I'll knock down 15 doors for myself if it means that I'm leaving it wide open for the next person behind me. So, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I just get back from my vacation. I just sent notes to um, my direct reports just saying thanks. Like, hey, thank you for taking the bull by the horns and doing this. And it's because it's, it's especially as a leader, as someone who has to find time to step away to just reinvigorate themselves so that they can really be the best they can for other people. Being able to step away and knowing when you come back that things have been taken care of, you know, the train is still moving, there's no fires, I'm not getting emails with complaints on them. Like, that's awesome for me, because like, okay, I can, I, can, I can trust them even more than I already trusted them. It's like, okay, like, we're moving in the right direction. So, so that's kind of the thing that I really enjoy is seeing the growth in people. It's like, that gives me joy. It's like, ah, oh, you get it. Because that's something I put on my presentations too, is that again, we're designers and we design for the world. And so design should represent the world. Mm -hmm. And it it doesn't today. One day it will. I like that. That's good optimism. Well, I mean, we have no choice, right? By 2060, the the majority will be a minority. Mm -hmm. If design stays, remains the way it is today, and I'm talking about design big D across the board, like architecture, all of the industries, um, if they remain as homogenous as they are today, then we will continuously miss the mark when it comes to creating experiences for people, regardless of what that experience is. Well, this has been uh, really insightful, and thank you. I feel very inspired um, by your interview and uh, by your stories, so thank you. We like to end with a couple of recommendations, and so I was wondering if I can pick your brain on a couple of things here. The first is I noticed that you have some amazing fashion sense uh, with rings, uh, shoes, uh, hats. There's a hat on the table in front of us here. Uh, Recommendations of like to build the perfect wardrobe. What would you suggest? That's a great question. I think every person is different. I will immediately say that my taste is a bit higher end well, a lot higher is I have a I have a problem. <laughs> a problem or an investment? It is it is very much an investment. Um, I think the higher end it is, the less they make. So, it's it's an investment, and I probably won't ever sell. I don't even like returning clothes. I would say that 
there's like everyone I feel like has a cornerstone piece in their closet. Like there's one thing that is theirs and they, they either buy a lot of that one thing or a lot of things that seem like it's the same as that. For me, it's sweatshirts. And I like them because they're comfortable, but they also can be super stylish. And so like, I know that's my cornerstone and I built things around those. It's almost like design, right? It's this thing of you're creating, like you're, you're creating something and you use color, you use texture, you use these other things to make it come to fruition the way you want it. So for me, the other thing I really pay attention to is color. I do use color theory all the time. Like the biggest recommendation I, ha I can have is pay attention to colors more than anything. If you can leverage color theory in your wardrobe, you can actually come up with a really interesting combinations. Color blocking is a thing. It's basically when you take huge blocks of color and put them on your body. So for me, I would sometimes wear a warm uh, or a cool colored shirt, like a just an all green shirt and I'll have a warm colored pair of pants, like like red pants, and then I'll wear like a neutral shoe. That's kind of how I play around with things, is the shoe is should always be the contrast. Like it should be the thing that either stands out or blends in or something in between. And you should never match a whole bunch of colors together unless you're gonna wear something really bright with it that's gonna stand. Like for me, I'm wearing all gray right now, but my shoes are blue. That's the only reason I would do it. I would never wear all gray with gray shoes. That's just atrocious. You never do that. <laughs> <laughs> now I actually, actually have um, worn a gradient outfit. Like I've worn a um, like black shoes, gray, dark gray pants, and a light gray shirt. So I've done like gradients before and I've played oh, with neutrals so like cool. that. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Come with there, you know, just yeah. play with colors. What's a, what's a nice piece of music that ins has inspired you lately? Mm. It's funny, I actually just uh, text this song to a friend of mine, and it's it's actually on a vinyl record that I own of R Roberta Flack, mm -hmm. and it's called Angelitos Negros, or Black Angels, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful song, sung back in, I don't know, the 60s or 50s, um, but yeah, it's just, it's just a really nice song on YouTube, Roberta Flack, it's beautiful. The best food that inspires creativity. Oh, now, now you're just now you're just making stuff up. <laughs> I, I truly am right now. I really am. Um, so there's this great Ethiopian place called Queen Sheba, if I'm not mistaken. It's really good Ethiopian. Um, and then there's this Indian place that I can't think of now, but I love Indian food. Give me a samosa any day. It's the best. Finally, for for me. Digital or analog? Hmm. Lo-fi or hi-fi? Honestly, it's it's my technology. Uh, and maybe it's just the millennial in me, but the like the lo-fi to hi-fi thing, for me, it kind of is the same. Like there is no difference between the two for me. It's, all of it is hi-fi. Like if it's, if I, even if I throw an idea onto a whiteboard in a meeting, that's a hi-fi. Cause that's, that's, a, that's a damn good idea. You should take that. <laughs> <laughs> The only last thing I was going to think of was favorite travel destination. Mm, Colombia. Hmm. I love Medellin. It is the most beautiful mountain city. I think they call it the, um, the city of eternal spring. And it's just amazing. So, yeah, I love it. Timothy, thank you so much for your time. Your apartment is amazing and <laughs> such a, uh, a beautiful aesthetic that truly talks about the type of uh, creative that you are. So thank you for inviting us here and uh, for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.
This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at T-I-D-S Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your designer friends. Bye for now.